Good morning. I'm going to take my phone out in case I take a spill. Let's just pray one more time. Heavenly Fathers, we have gathered together uh, this morning. Uh, we've ga gathered together with great purpose uh, to hear directly from you. Um, Father, to take in what you have for us today, to uh, celebrate in this uh, opportunity to witness a baptism and a testimony of one that has been, or, or more than one that has been born again. And Father, we just pray that you would um, humble us, uh, prepare us, and in all of these things, uh, show us um, how great you are and the grace that has been given to us in Christ Jesus and all that he's done and all that he is doing for us. And Father, what we should do uh, in return, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, what, what, what is a Christian? Um, oftentimes when we describe a Christian, we'll say, oh, a Christian is somebody that, uh, you know, goes to church, that reads their Bible, that tries to obey the teachings of Jesus. And you say, well, those are all things that a Christian does. But what is a Christian? Uh, when you look in the dictionary, it'll be described as um, somebody who believes uh, in the teachings of Jesus Christ. I say, well, if they are a Christian, they will believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ. But what is a Christian? In simple terms, we would describe it as a Christian is someone that belongs to Christ. Somebody that has been bought, somebody that's been paid for, somebody that's been born again. When we use those terms, it's almost as if in the marriage relationship, what is a husband? Well, a husband is someone that belongs to a wife. A wife is somebody that belongs to a husband. Uh, there's a moment in time that takes place when you go from being a single individual to now being joined together with another person. It's been changed. Changed individual. Somebody that belongs to Christ, the question would come, how does one come to belong to Christ? When you think of how one becomes to belong to Christ. There's an understanding of sin. And when we say sin, the first thing that comes to mind are the things that we do. Um, the things that we do that go against scripture, the things that we do that violate our own conscience. But in general, when we think of sin, I want you guys to think of it in such a way as we have placed ourselves in the position of God. We are the authority. We do what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. We think the way we think, we act the way we act, we do the things we do. So anything that we do where we have taken and we have put ourselves in the position of God, anything that follows is sinful. What does the gospel tell us? Well, the gospel tells us that the person of Jesus Christ put himself in our place as one deserving of judgment, as one deserving the penalty that our sin has caused. So our sin is putting us in the place of God. What the gospel tells us is that Jesus put himself in the place of us, a sinner. In fact, he became sin for us that he might pay that penalty. So when we think of the gospel, it is the message, the, the, the great good news that Jesus Christ was sent in this world to save us that he was sent, that he came willingly, that he lived his life under the law, that he obeyed the law, and all these things he did in per 
perfect obedience to his father, that he went to the cross offering himself willingly, and in those hours when he was nailed there and his blood was shed and the judgment of God was being poured out upon him, sin was dealt with. That Christ was then taken down from the cross, he was buried, and to prove that this work was complete, he rose from the dead the third day. He appeared unto many. And we have this idea that in that moment, justification for all sinners took place. But not everybody goes to heaven. Who goes to heaven? The person that has faith in Jesus Christ. Well, how does this happen? Well, this grace that has been poured out upon us in the person of Jesus Christ as he's come into the world, as he's taken himself, our sin upon himself, and suffered there and been judged and bore that penalty, that wrath of God, and paid for it, we now have to have faith in order to receive this blessing. When you say, well, what is faith? What are we talking about? And I would simply say that faith is believing that the promises God made, he is able to fulfill. And you say, well, what promises? And the easiest one is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's a promise that God made. Faith is choosing to believe it. And in that moment, when that act of faith takes place and you trust the finished work of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that we are born again, that the Spirit indwells us, that we have been become a new creation. The question then is, what do we do now? What do we do now? And this is a little bit what we're going to talk about this morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Uh, what we've gone through is a little bit of what's explained in Romans 1 through 5. As you go all the way through Romans 1 through 5, you find that everyone ever lived is condemned because of their sin. All are found guilty. What we find is that by faith, a person is justified. And that justification takes place because in one man, this one man, Adam, all died, and now those that have faith in Christ, by Christ's finished and completed work, by one man's one act, all will be made righteous. Well, sometimes the question comes about, and I'm sure Russ uh, uh, could help us out with this, but sometimes the question comes about when you're presenting the gospel to somebody, you wonder, am I presenting this correctly? Is this the easiest way for someone to understand? Does this make the most sense? How do I know? One of the ways you'll know is by the questions or the responses that you get. If you're presenting a gospel of grace, that it is a free gift of God, that it is not of works, that there's nothing that you do, that it's already been finished. In fact, your sins had already been paid for 2,000 years ago on the cross of Christ at this Mount of Calvary, that the, the work is ready to be applied to you if you would just have faith. One of the ways you would know that you presented it correctly is the person would say, so you're saying that I can just do whatever I want and sin as much as I want and nothing happens? Because that's exactly the question that comes up in Romans chapter 6. They say in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And there's this question that comes about because Paul's explaining that it is only by grace that this salvation takes place. And to the logical person listening to this, the logical unbeliever would say, So you're just saying that it's a get-out-of-jail-free card, and uh, I just trust in Jesus, and then I can live however I want. 
The answer is no. Before I was saved, Kathy and I would have this conversation all the time. She knew that she was presenting the gospel the right way because she would say that when a person trusts Christ and they're born again and the Spirit lives in them, they will want to obey God, even though there's no consequence for their sin. They will want to obey God. And I would look at her and say, that is the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Because logically, in a lost person's mind, it does not make sense. Because we need the Spirit of God. Once the Spirit of God is within us and we understand all that God has done for us, we respond out of love and service, not out of fear of punishment. The world would say, if you do not have a form of consequence, you have no power over the person. So everything we do normally is from a position of power, where we try to have a consequence. If someone's late, if someone doesn't show up, if someone doesn't do what they're supposed to, there has to be a form of punishment. In God's realm, Christ paid it all. And it's by grace we have been saved through faith. So the question comes about, what do we do now? You might wonder what all this has to do with the baptism today. It has everything to do with the baptism today. So we're going to get into it. It says, verse 2, Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." It's a miraculous chapter. Uh, most of Romans is uh, miraculous chapter after miraculous chapter. And as we're going through it, we, we learn kind of the steady progression as we're presenting the gospel to somebody, some of the responses we may get from them. Uh, this was a, a very strong response that, that anybody that presented the gospel to me would get. Um, it would be this complete doubt that a person would just be obedient just because. And what the Apostle Paul decides to use is this idea of baptism. Now, when we talk about baptism, we talk about water baptism. We talk about a person coming into the water, being completely immersed, being completely brought back up, and done so in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is a picture of what took place. This is an identification of something that has already happened. This, what's taking place in Romans chapter 6, is the actuality of what happened. Uh, when we trusted Christ, 
we died with Christ. We were buried with Christ. We rose with Christ. And now we live in newness of life and we are to walk away. And that is what is going to be pictured today. A person is going to willingly get into the water. A person is then to be completely submerged, signifying the death and the burial and the resurrection. And then they're going to actually get out of this water. They don't stay in there. They get out and they live in newness of life. This is a uh, public testimony of what has already taken place for somebody. This has no merits in the sense that uh, it adds to the work of salvation. Uh, it has no merit in the sense that uh, you receive anything for it other than it is a first step in obedience to God. And we would say, well, how do we get that? Just, uh, you don't have to turn there, uh, but I'm just going to read it real quick. It's in Matthew, <clears throat> the end of it. It's just two verses. We probably know it by heart. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is this first initial step in obedience after salvation, is in baptism. Um, if someone ever, just a side note uh, about the Trinity, because it's brought up here, they say, well, the Trinity is not um, mentioned in the Bible. You could take into that verse and show that all three persons of the Godhead are given equal footing and presented as God. That's a, one of the easiest uh, texts to turn to, just a side note. So this is what takes place. In this pattern, Paul, we have to remember, Paul is answering the question of how do we live? What do we do? Should we, can we just keep sinning? And the question was, we have this. A person that was a, you know, we would say a real bad sinner. A person that really needed to be saved. You know, somebody that went to prison, that did drugs, that really was a bad guy, bad girl. Needed to be saved, got saved. It would, it's an immense picture of the grace of God. And so the logic in this question is saying, well, if we just continue to sin all the time, then we're just exemplifying the greater grace of God. And Paul's saying, that, that's not the purpose of what God wants from you. Um, so the answer is no, you can't just go and live your life as you did before. Uh, there's a change that's taken place, and because of that change, you can't do that anymore. So when he's picturing this idea of baptism and he's showing what's taking place, it's to answer this question, how do we live now? What do we do? He's going to talk about this idea of the things that we know, things that we know to be true, things that we know have taken place, and that's through the first basically 10 verses. He's going to talk about the things that we are now to reckon, and it's going to be the first exhortation we have in the book of Romans in verse 11. What do we reckon? And then in verse 13, it's going to talk about what we present, what we present. So these are the three things that we're going to talk about here uh, today in the next 15 minutes, and then we're going to end, so bear with me. <clears throat> this question comes up, or do you not know? Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When you become one with Christ, you have this idea that he is not only our substitute, but he was our representative. When we say, well, what's the difference? Our representative being that when he was on the cross, he represented us at that point in time. In our substitute, he substituted himself in order to pay that penalty for us. So the two are kind of combined. 
we have this idea that therefore, in verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Uh, in today's time, a lot of uh, mainstream Christianity is moving towards the idea that, well, God loves me just as I am, um, and he accepts me for who I am, so I can go on kind of living the way I want, because this is how God made me. That is complete heresy. That is not biblical at all. God saved you to change you, that you would no longer be who you are, but that you would become like Christ. And you have this responsibility that's been given to you that because of all Christ has done for you, you are to live in this newness of life. You are to be a testimony of Jesus Christ and an example of his character. This is why we read and study our Bibles to figure out what God is like. What is Jesus like? How does Jesus act? What does Jesus do? This is how we're to orient our life. So that no longer in this picture of sin that we had, am I in charge of my own life and seated in the position of God, but now God has taken his rightful position on the throne of our lives and he is in charge. So this does not mean perfection. This does not mean that when we're saved, we're baptized, and we go on and we live a perfect life. What it's saying is that when we commit sin, when we do these things, we submit ourselves back to God. We do not say, well, that's okay. Eh, that's not really a big one. That doesn't hurt anybody. It's not harming anyone else. Well, it harmed the person of the Lord Jesus. One of the best quotes I've heard uh, from Nate Bramson was, uh, is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? <laughs> Let me tell you, that, that, that hits you hard. Is what you're living for worth Christ dying for? So as he continues, he shows this picture of baptism. Buried, dying with Christ, buried with Christ, risen with Christ. Now you walk with Christ. In verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Again, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Uh, these are all things that as believers we are to know. And he's writing this in an epistle to the Romans um, that had no apostolic founding. And so he, even he is saying that if you know the gospel, you know this. This is what we're telling you here. What's being said? That... In this act that has taken place, in this resurrection that has taken place, that our old man has been put to death. And when we think of the old man, a lot of imagery comes up. Um, one of the consensus beliefs is this has to deal with this idea of those, that old man Adam, right? What we were under as under the old man Adam. So being born under Adam, we had this problem where we couldn't help but sin. We had no power to overcome sin ourselves. We continue to sin because we are sons of Adam. What is taking place now is saying we have died to that and we have now been raised to new life in Christ and we are now under the person of Christ and we now have the spirit of God in us to walk in newness of life. We have the power to overcome sin. You say, well, how do I do that? I want the power to overcome sin. How do, we, how do I beat sin? You know, I've been stuck in this sin. I, I keep going back to it. I keep going back to it. I keep asking God to, to deal with it, and I'm trying real hard, but I keep going back to the specific sin. How do I overcome it? It starts with knowing a few things. 
For he who has died has been freed from sin. Do you know that you're free from sin? If you've trusted in Christ? That you don't have to sin anymore? We still do. We still stumble. We still fall. But what this is saying is that we don't have to anymore. It says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Again, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Uh, It's this explanation basically saying that the payment that Christ made on the cross dealt with it forever. Never going to come up again for us that believe in Christ. We have been completely freed from this bondage of sin and we will not suffer death in the sense that it's speaking of here as eternal separation from God. We now live, and when our bodies die, we will be with Christ forevermore. Everlasting life is what we come into. And it goes this in verse 11. This is, again, the first exhortation uh, that we'll see in Romans. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Uh, We're going to turn real quick, we have enough time, to Joshua. Book of Joshua, chapter 10. We're going to break in at verse 24. You might say, why are you turning to Joshua, chapter 10? This was presented to me as a picture of what it is to reckon, reckon something, um, And I I think it's a great example, so that's why we're turning to Joshua chapter 10. What's taking place? Uh, They've gone to battle against the the Amorite kings. There's these five uh, kingdoms. Uh, They rule much of uh, uh, Israel at the time. And Joshua is leading this, uh, this charge with his captains of war against these men. These five kings barricade themselves in a cave. They don't barricade, they hide in a cave. And they find out that these five guys are hiding in this cave, and Joshua says, well, roll a stone over it and go uh, chase down these armies, destroy these armies, and then we'll come back and deal with these people. So they roll a stone over it, they go, they kill all all the people that are fleeing, and then now they've come back to this place. In verse 24, um, it says they, they bring all these kings, so, well, the verse 22, they come back to this place. It says, uh, then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings to him from the king, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. So it was when they brought out these kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. So he tells these captains where to come, and these kings are lying on the ground. He says, put your foot on their neck. So they put their foot on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, but be strong and of good courage. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua is telling them to reckon all of their enemies as though they were this person on the ground and whom they have their their foot on their neck. This is the picture. Okay, reckon. Reckon all your enemies to be like this man beneath your foot. Verse 26. Afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. 
And they were hanging on the trees until evening. So it was at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees, cast them into the cave where they had been hidden, and laid large stones against the cave's mouth, which remain until this very day. The men that had the feet on the necks did not kill the men beneath them. Joshua did. Sometimes in our Christian life, when we're talking about reckoning, we think that we have to defeat the sin. We think that we have to overcome it somehow, that we're going to conquer it in some form or fashion. But what Paul is telling us, what is pictured here, is that we simply have to reckon that this has already been done and it has been done by God. And then our Joshua, our Jesus, comes in and gets rid of the sin. It is not in us to take glory for this act of overcoming sin. It is Christ's glory to overcome sin. He is the Savior. We still think in our times that we're going to go out there and we're going to fight the battles and we're going to defeat the sin ourselves. But what the Bible is telling us is that Christ has already done away with it. We simply, when those things come about, have to put our foot on the neck of the sin that's besetting us and say, Lord, you said that I've been freed from this and I'm calling upon you to deal with this. And you submit to Christ and you say, I'm dead to this. I don't have to do this anymore. You might think that sounds simple. But if you think it sounds simple, that is the wisdom of the world. That is the same attitude I would have had when I said, a person just obeys because they want to? You mean Christ just comes and he's going to help you and deal with that sin? His word promises that he will give you the strength to endure the sin that is in front of you. You simply have to, by faith, trust it. And it is the grace of God to deal with this sin. I, I think it's a great picture um, in, in, in Joshua chapter 10 of this idea of reckoning and then Joshua coming and slaying uh, the kings there, not the men that are reckoning this to take place. Go ahead and turn back to Romans chapter 6. So reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, Therefore, so because of all these things, because of this picture of baptism being uh, dead, buried, risen, and now walking in newness of life, um, because we are now reckoning ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. We don't live in such a way that we commit a sin and we're punished. We live in such a way that we do not present ourselves to sin, we do not allow ourselves to fall into these temptations, but if we do, we recognize that Christ paid the penalty for all our sin. It's not something that we pay for. In all of this, what could be seen today in this baptism is really a reenactment of a funeral that took place for the person that's going in the water. When that person was born again, they died to themselves, and they have now risen to a new life in Christ, and they are now with Christ. And what we're going to see is a reenactment of that take place and one going into the water and then coming out. And as they walk, we are to be witnesses of them and reminders to them that you testify that you've been born again. You can't live that way anymore. 
For us, it is a reminder. For someone here, if you're struggling with the sin and you have given up, you have submitted to that sin, you have again become a slave to sin, I ask you, I implore you, to reckon yourselves dead to that. You are freed from sin. You're not under the law, but now under grace. You don't have to live that way anymore. As he continues, he gives this example of being a slave to sin or a slave to God. Uh, Christ's famous word, no man can serve two masters. So there's this idea of what are you serving today? And you might think of it in wicked terms, but you don't have to. Uh, this, this example has been used a number of times. And I'm going to be quick about it. Um, there's a, a very um, promising law student. Uh, he's in a meeting with his, one of his esteemed professors, and they're both believers. They're going over life. They're talking about his courses. And in the course of it, this uh, student keeps talking about all the things that he wants in life, all the things he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish. And the professor says, well, it might be good to organize these things. So what do you want to do next? He says, well, I hope to graduate, you know, top of my class, um, and then go out and look for a job. And the professor says, and then? And then I hope to uh, get a job at a law firm and perform well and to show with my uh, gift and eloquence and, and wit uh, that I am worthy of the wealth that they're going to give me. Okay, and then what? Well, and then I hope to be partner, uh, hopefully get married, you know, have children, do all of these things, um, live in a nice place, have reputation and wealth. And then, well, I, I guess... After that, I'll retire and hopefully have grandkids and travel and do all the things that I want to do. He says, and then? <laughs> and then I, I'll die. And the professor says, and then? And there's this recognition and this question to us, what are we living for? And the chapter ends with this famous verse, an amazing verse. Verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Is what we're living for, what we're pursuing, what we're going after, things that are going to result in death, destruction, elimination, things that when we say we can't take it with us. Do you want to be like this person that was going through the list of things and all the way through and finally gets to the end and realizes that he's going to stand before God and have absolutely nothing to show but all the things that have now died? <laughs> we have this opportunity to accept this free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus and to enjoy it, to pursue it in such a way that we enjoy life living in Christ. Uh, it's not this thing of bonds. We're not under law. But we are under grace. And so live as a way that you've received a great gift. Um, as we go through this, this chapter, uh, there's a lot in this chapter, but I hope briefly we have seen this idea of what is going to take place here uh, today. Uh, if you have been baptized, what happened when you were baptized, what you were saying when that took place, to remind you. If you are struggling with sin, the things that you need to know, things that you need to reckon, and that you need to present yourself to righteousness and not no longer to sin. And that all is done because of this gift of God that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have uh, come together today, we do so with great thanksgiving. Um, we do so in, with great anticipation. Um, knowing, Father, that uh, this is a reminder to us of what our life is supposed to be. 
uh, a life lived for you, a life lived in obedience, a life lived to your glory. And, Father, that we are to enjoy this amazing gift that is the person of Jesus Christ, that he fights our battles, that he has won the victory, uh, that he has uh, given us an inheritance and a place, and he is preparing a place. And, Father, that one day he will gather us together to be with him forever, and we will forever be with him. Uh, we praise your name for this plan of salvation. Uh, we thank you for this time and for those that are being baptized. We pray that they would indeed, when they come out of this water, walk in this newness of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.